Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. This is going to be a board gaming podcast about board games. Deal with it. I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm just sitting here dealing with it, Walker. I'm just trying to process the truth that you've dropped at my feet. All right. I just wanted to give a shout out to our guild on Board Game Geek. We're getting some fantastic conversations there this week. It's always a joy to pop in and chirp in on the, the latest comings and goings of our of our hobby and our our little circle of of geekdom. Another week, another week of people misattributing things that I said to you and things that you said to me. I, exactly, I love it. The the Mark Walker quotes reign supreme. Absolutely. Who is that Mark Walker guy? He seems to be very dumb. <laughs> so, in this podcast, we talk about games we played this week. Then we talk about news and why it doesn't matter, and then we talk about a feature game which this week is Hollertau. I was going to say, I meant to put that in. I meant to put the designer of Baron Park in here. But <laughs> anyway, by Uwe Rosenberg. Mark, what did you play this week? I got to play Anachrony Fractures of Time. I commented previously that having returned to Anachrony, I was very keen to try the new expansion. And I wanted to try the new solo mode because there's a new solo mode, the Chronosis. And I've commented in the past that David Zirkze, the designer of Anachrony, although I, I really like Anachrony, I think it's his best work, and I really liked the previous solo mode for Anachrony, generally speaking, David Zirkze solo designs are not to my taste. So when we got a review copy in, uh, sent to us by the publisher of Fractures of Time, I was very interested to see what had happened to this supposedly revamped solo mode, particularly because it promised that it was going to accommodate some of the many modules already existent in Anachrony, and some of the new modules in Fractures of Time. And so I immediately thought, oh, is this going to be the kind of thing where the solo mode takes 20 pages of rules and complicated targeting restrictions that David Zirte loves to do in solo modes? And I'm here to tell you that the solo mode in particular, I'll talk about the solo mode first and I'll talk about the expansion more generally. The new solo mode in Fractures of Time, it uses something that I haven't seen actually since the solo mode of Race of a Galaxy, which is to say it's modular in that some of the action spaces of the AI worksheet basically get replaced by tokens during setup, representing the different modules that you use. And I love this. It's great. It tends to be a very low-impact way to give the AI a little bit of modularity based on what's going on in the game. The way Race of the Galaxy did this it was for different start worlds. Different start worlds would pursue different strategies based on their strengths in the weird solo system. And in Anachrony, you have just little places to slot in different actions for the AI to do based on what modules you're using. And that was great. Other than that, the AI is basically unchanged. It uses the, fun the same fundamentals, the same bones as the previous one. And as a result, we're talking about like two pages of rules that I barely had to look up at all during play. I thought it was wonderful. It's one of my favorite Eurogame solo modes, generally speaking. And I think that the increase in complexity that was introduced in Fractures of Time, you definitely get payoff for in terms of its modularity and its flexibility. So I think that's a great triumph. And I'm a big did fan they, of that. Did they, up the, did they up the time travel game? Does it make more sense or does it feel more thematic? That is a brilliant question, Walker, and I'm glad you asked because that was one of my hopes for the Fractures of Time module. And I think the answer is yes and no. The big thing that Fractures of Time introduces is this idea of being able to warp your workers so that they're in two places at the same time and they do effectively two placements for the price of one. 
And I was hoping that, that was going to feel time travel-y, and it doesn't really. It just feels like you're taking an extra worker placement without spending an extra giant stompy mech. But you do get a lot of quality sci-fi flavor, I think. Not specifically in the time travel sense, but in the sci-fi fl- flavor, because the way warps are handled, you basically have a time machine of your very own. In the base game of Anachrony, time travel is handled by power plants. And honestly, as somebody coming from Quebec who's very familiar with power generation, and of course stealing power from Newfoundland, I don't find power generation particularly time traveling. Now they explain, of course, that it's because the massive energy required to open up a wormhole, blah, 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 blah. So it made sense to a certain extent. But you don't you don't get a cool time machine, right? You just get these power plants that you go and activate. Finally, in Fractures of Time, you have a cool time machine. You can upgrade the cool time machine. You can maintain the cool time machine. You have different versions of the cool time machine based on what faction you are and whether you're playing the A side or the B side. And you have the flux cores that operate the cool time machine. And so that part, I really felt like it upped the overall feeling of science fiction texture. Not time travel specifically, but just in sort of cool technology, world building kind of stuff. And so that part, I really enjoyed. Now, uh, there are a couple of notes to be made about how Anachrony is sitting at the moment. I, in addition to getting the review copy of Fractures of Time, I went and purchased the Infinity Box upgrade. Because I love me some all-in-one box solutions. And now, Anachrony is a massive, massive box. The obvious joke is that Infinity Box refers to the dimensions of the box. Rimshot, thank you very much. And Anachrony was always a table monster. Not a super complicated game, and the board itself is relatively small. But you've got maps for this, and maps for that, and then a place for the buildings, and a place for this, that, and the other thing, and it just sprawls, and it's going to cover whatever playing space you have. Now, with the Fractures of Time module, which adds everyone gets their own time machine... And, of course, the additional setup space occupied by the very functional and kind of cool plastic trays. We're almost at the point now where it's absurd. We're almost at the point now where it's it's not really feasible for your average table size. Suffice to say that playing solo, it's even worse. Because when you're playing solo, you have to be able to reach everything at a given time. It made me start investigating little snack trays, little TV trays to put beside me, maybe, that I might start to invest in. So that's an indication of some of the usability issues with your your, uh, current instantiation of Anachrony. All of that having been said, I said it before and I'll say it again, Mind Clash games in terms of value for money, quality of components, attractiveness of components, and and they're not always amazingly functional, but they're never anti-functional. They're one of the best Euro publishers out there, I think, when it comes to these kinds of medium-heavy Euro games that are well-illustrated. They tend to have some notion of of world-building, how successful they are. It varies to, to varying degrees. But Mind Clash is very much doing the, the, the kind of Euro stuff that I enjoy. And so I had a great time playing solo with Fractures of Time. I can't wait to show it to some other people in our group. Uh, Huey and Louie were big, big fans of Anachrony, and I'm looking forward to showing them in person. Uh, the only way to play Fractures of Time online is on Tabletopia, which is not what we like. And quite frankly, when it sprawls like that, this is... I've been complaining about online games for for years, and I will continue to do so. But the more a game sprawls, the less I want to play it online. And Anachrony definitely falls victim to that, so I wouldn't want to add on those those additional features. Then the other final question for me with respect to an expansion is, would I show this to first-time players? And the answer is probably, to be frank, because the Fractures of Time module... Again, the additional rules are talking about like a page and a half, basically, and it gives you another cool little option. And... Anachrony is already a sufficiently detail-driven game that I think if you're able to handle it, that additional element I don't think is going to overwhelm you. It it, it fits in really organically. I'm I'm a big fan. Now, I haven't tried any of the other modules from the Fractures of Time expansion because, of course, it's a Mind Clash expansion, so it's got three or four other modules you can slap in. But I am looking forward to exploring more of this, and the core elements, as I say, are very, very solid. And I don't think that they are bloating it past the point of recognition, except in the sense, possibly, of spatial geography on your table. And so that's my early experiences with Anachrony Fractures of Time. Nice. You and I got to play Honey Buzz. It's designed by Paul Solman and published by Elf Creek Games. This is a game where you are a, a, a bee, Mark, and you collect <laughs> honey and sell it in the market to bears and raccoons and possums. Because nature. <laughs> so you're doing these, you're you're creating these cool little honeycomb cells and it creates your own little tableau of actions and then you are moving a bee around another sort of puzzly thing to pick up nectar so you can produce honey so you can do this and do that. I read the rules. 
before we played and I had some misgivings. They didn't, they didn't pan out as bad as I thought. The pacing was a little rough, right? Because you're either just grabbing a tile, putting it on your board, next player, or pulling your workers back, next player, or placing a tile. Oh, I've created a cell. Now everyone waits while I do six actions. So it was a little, a little rough that way. I think it was a little bit longer than it really should have been for its weight. It didn't have any set turn length or anything. You just had to wait for the, or the contracts to disappear or the prices to go down. I thought it was a little bit long. And as we saw in our game, it's very heads down as we got into the final turns. And I said, well, I know exactly what I'm going to do for the next few turns. So I'll just see what other people are doing. I could just see that one player was just completely playing incorrectly. I had not, you know, gone over the rules properly and they were just transferring resources in an incorrect way. And it's obviously no one else notice because they're just all concentrating on their own board. So not very, uh, interactive. What did you think of honey buzz? Well, I, I mean, I don't think there's any reason to beat around the bush. We can just fly straight to the stinger. I don't want to have to make you comb the internet for this kind of information. I'll keep it short and sweet is what I'm saying. No, no sense dancing around it. Bees. It was all right. I was, I, I was very nervous about the spatial puzzle element because in order to get nectar, what you need to do is make a cluster and the way in which your tiles are oriented will determine what kind of nectar, which is the core resource of the game, can get placed there. And that shape of the tiles that you're mostly grabbing will interact with another board where you have to move around to grab the thing that will fit in that specific space, which will in turn correspond to a resource that gets produced, which is sold on a market. And I was worried that all of this was going to start giving me headaches because it comes with this player aid that says, look, in order to make this kind of nectar, you need to build this kind of shape. In order to build this other kind of nectar, you need to build this other kind of shape. I'm like, this is going to get wild. In practice, all that it basically amounted to was that I was playing purely tactically. I would look at my board and say, oh, okay, well, I can plug this hole. And if I do, I get some actions. I guess I'll do that. Oh, it generates this kind of nectar over there. Can I sell it? No, uh, maybe I'll sell, sell it later. And so I was able to just be reactive and, and, and just purely do that. But I agree with you entirely. The pacing was often very, very rough. Half the time, you are doing entirely uninteresting turns. I'm taking all my workers back and not doing really anything else. I've noticed more and more of these relatively simple worker placement games are really leaning into this place a worker or take your workers back system. We keep, we keep seeing them run into this over releases of the past year or so. Not that I object to it. It's just a striking pattern. Or you're grabbing a tile and placing it, and then nothing happens. Or, as you say, you're grabbing a tile and placing it, and then seven things happen, and everybody gets to wait. And you're entirely right. Uh, Huey was playing very incorrectly for the first half of the game, and nobody noticed because nobody was paying attention, because nobody had to pay attention, because there was no point in paying attention. So it was relatively inoffensive, a little overlong, a little procedural, no player interaction to speak of. I'm not even sure if people who really dig spatial interaction tile A will be able to appreciate that element. Because again, it just doesn't really amount to much. You just grab what's available and then you take what's available. It, it didn't seem really worth it to to really plan out an elaborate honeycomb arrangement. Maybe that's just me. And we could and we could have played the super advanced way where we got to play a memory game at the same time. Wouldn't have that been fun? I had completely forgotten about that nightmare. Yeah, the the third level, placing tiles and then placing different tiles and getting those tiles to get the resources could have just been a, oh, they're all face down. Better hope you find the thing that fits. Ugh. No, thank well, you. we would have had that problem with them all disappearing at the end of the game because they probably all would have still been on the board. Well, yeah, and, and that's another aspect. About halfway through the game or so, the nectar tiles, the one that generate resources, more or less dried up. And so all we were doing was not even really pumping an engine. We didn't really have an engine to speak of because it's one of those things where tiles that give you actions will activate a couple of times, maybe. And so it was just this endless iteration of every couple of turns getting some action cycles and hoping that what infrastructure we, we built a few turns ago, scant though it was, would be able to get us through. I mean, the art was charming. The little bee meeples were nice. Yes, I always, I always felt as though a lot of worker placements were you know, there's spaces taken or you don't have the resources that you need. Here's this one space that's going to penalize you heavily, but at least you get to do what you really need to do type thing. It's sort of like, you know, the, the, the fail safe. And this game just did not have that at all. Yeah, a lot of people, myself included, were relying very heavily on the action tiles of which you start with one, that when they trigger, you get to do one action of your choice. 
And so as a result, I, that you know, on the one hand, it was nice to have that flexibility. But on the other hand, it really relieved the pressure of having to do anything in particular. And generally speaking, worker placement games up the tension. And I, I, I like a little tension in my worker placement games. I realize that maybe this is pitching slightly more towards a family from the audience, but I don't think I'd want to play with this with children. I don't think they'd grok it. It was just, eh, well, I have this action that can do whatever I need. All right. Okay. Again, it was just this sort of smoothing out of any of the difficulty, which was good in the one sense, because again, I was I had, I had been afraid of the spatial orientation, but that wasn't a problem. But then again, the economy didn't introduce any tension either, so I, I just wasn't engaged. Look beautiful, but otherwise a miss. And that was Honey Buzz. I was going to have an elaborate joke about how this was going to be the inaugural installment of games named after songs from Jesus Christ Superstar, and I was going to ask you, what's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. But I decided to move on. I really wish you would. <laughs> we get to play more of The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine. And the one thing that I want to stress about The Crew, that I, uh, again, every time I go to it, I'm finding more more great things to say about The Crew. This is hardly news. Everyone loves The Crew. I've not encountered anybody who's like, eh, The Crew's bad. These people probably hate Joy. But I, as we're getting deeper into the missions... There are lovely little surprises. Now, some of them are not exactly what I would call the best balance. But again, it's a co-op. It, one of the things I keep saying about co-ops is you get to be a little sloppy. It's a little too hard, a little too easy. Eh, who cares? Fine. Especially in a context like the crew, where every mission is so quick. One mission we encountered was there are going to be two tasks that somebody has to do. And the commander has to decide who does them, but nobody knows what the tasks are. So all you have to go on is people looking at their hands and basically saying, I think my hand is good-ish. And then they get the tasks and it's like, oh, my hand isn't good for these tasks. And it was, I don't know why, but in, in another game, if it were longer, if it were competitive, if, it, if there was more friction between one hand and the next, I would regard this as absolutely unforgivable. And even at the time it was happening, as I was trying to internalize how the mission worked, I'm like, really? They're, they're pulling this? But it worked out okay. And so I have to say that even though after having played the crew dozens and dozens of times, mostly on the lower missions, you do get a, a, a number of, of great, interesting interplays based on, you know, again, you have three tasks. Are they all different suits? Are they all the same suit? That leads to a different feeling. But the different missions just give the game a shot in the arm in terms of variety. These lovely little moments. And that's that's really what you want out of a game with like, 40 plus scenarios you want some of them to be weird and wacky and memorable and i applaud the crew for having done that never fails to please love the crew mark i got to play flick flick of faith finally i know i looked i we were i was looking at it quite a few times on table top simulator but it really doesn't give you that same sort of physical feel this is designed by are you ready for this yes apparently they needed a bunch of designers to reinvent the the flicking motion so powell slobliski jan turbanowskitz and lucas was jaracek Lodacek is what i would guess but we'll let your attempt stand we apologize to the designers of flick of faith for what we have just done to your names and it's published by awaken realms light and this is just another dexterity flicking game but it has and they just do it right like if you start heaping on too many rules then it just gets procedural and painful this is just flick out discs try to get them on the islands try to get the majority on the islands and then every round there's like these silly rules that you know will either give you more discs or flick two at a time or what we got right off the bat was okay you're not going to take turns now just flick your discs as fast as you can and when you're done <laughs> stop and then the other person has to stop as well. Uh, you know, kind of odd for, you know, welcome to this game. You know, it's going to be back and forth. And then, no, 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 we're not going to do that now. Just, you know, flick <laughs> as fast as you can. Go crazy. And it's like, okay, here we go. And that is Flick of Faith. It's it's an interesting little game. Everyone has their own uh, unique special power. At the beginning, it's on Greek gods. There's Zeus. No, well, it's, I guess all sorts of different. Never mind. It's not Greek gods at all. It's a bunch of yes. different civilizations. A whole bunch of different pantheons, yeah. Powers. Unfortunately, I got hit by the missing components bat again, but uh, it's been beaten upon my body quite a bit, so maybe it's going to be worn out for a little while. You can leave me alone for a Look on the bright side. Bit. Although you have had the misfortune of missing components from several games recently, none of them have been from Asmodee, so you haven't had to deal with their atrocious new policies. Yes, this is true. And this is that was Flick of Faith, a fantastic dexterity game. Can't wait to try it. 
I got to play Paris. This is another game by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer, the famous collaboration. Uh, to be frank, I'm not a huge fan of Kiesling and Kramer games, generally speaking. None of them have really spoken to me. Uh, they're responsible for the Mask trilogy. I know you're a big fan of Taurus. I've never played it. Uh, Tikal and you know Cusco slash uh, Me- Mexica, they never really did much for me. My favorite Wolfgang Kramer games have been done with uh, other people, specifically El Grande. But anyway, setting all that aside, they, they've been collaborating for many, many years and have released a lot of, uh, of good games. And Kiesling is known for his more recent output involving Athul, which is another game that I'm not a huge fan of. But anyway, so Paris is an area-majority game that takes place in the titular city. And sorry, I, I, I'm being informed right now uh, by a, a live update from someone on the internet that it is pronounced Pawi. So I'm, I'm very, very sorry. We, we mispronounce things here on this podcast. So in Paris, it's an area-majority game where there are kind of two phases. In the first phase, you're placing out tiles. In the second phase, you're not. But in either case, you can put out these keys. And I don't know if there was any sort of thematic explanation for what these keys are, but... You either put them in a bank and get some money, or you move them from the bank to another tile in a certain area. And you're basically jockeying for area majority, and every key will provide a certain number, either one to eight, based on the kind of tile you're going to, and that's how expensive it is to go there. Uh, One thing that I did like about Paris, straight off the bat, is there was this tension about whether or not areas would score. The value of a given area is unknown until there are four keys that have been placed there, and whoever places the fourth key gets to determine how remunerative the area is going to be in terms of points. But if you don't get to four keys, it's not going to be worth anything. So you can have up to three keys in an area worth literally nothing, regardless of the competition for victory points. When they put four keys in, you get to pick a victory point tile, but you don't have to put it in that area. It can go to any area. Oh, that's a good point. It can go to an area where you have just one key. So that leads to even more you know, decision-making in the game. That is an excellent point. You're quite right. One thing that I didn't like about the game, though, was the way the first half and the second half interacted. In the first half, you're placing out all these tiles, and the first thing you do in your turn is you put out a tile, and you can tell what region it's going to go into, but you don't know what number it's going to be. And then you can do something with your key. And in the second half of the game, all the tiles are out, and you just me- you just monkey around with your keys. The problem is that what I like in an area-majority game is when you have enough friction such that you can try to participate and compete for various majorities. But the problem is, by the time areas were sufficiently settled, such that you knew what the tiles were, there tended to be enough keys out that there wasn't enough room to really jockey in that way that I like. So what you had was the first half of the game where you're populating the board, where it's mostly random as to what comes up, even as to what's available. It's not like you can pick any region and put a tile there. It's just you have three tiles to choose from, You you don't know what they are. You know what region they're going to go to, but you're kind of limited in that way. And so it it felt a little bit like a false choice. And by the time things could potentially get interesting, once I knew enough about the state of play, things were locked down to the extent that I was already bound to the decision I'd made a few turns ago. And it's not that I objected forward planning. It's just at that point, I wasn't able to jockey for area control the way I would like to. Because like, oh, well, someone else is sitting on the eight and someone else is sitting on the five. And there's no reason for me to bust into this region, therefore, because there's, no, there's a ceiling to how far I can go. So I guess that's already done, kind of, sort of. All right. And so I felt it was a little bit awkward in terms of that game pacing. What did you think of Paris, Walker? I really liked it. It's because I think there's a lot of other scoring there besides just getting uh, the area majority and everything. You could go for, you know, second or third in some of the places. And I really liked that the decision at the beginning of the game where do you put your build your key into one of the buildings and try to get the the resource before somebody else does or do you want to get your populate your keys out there so you can just quickly take you know scoop up this stuff because those resources were fairly limited you know what i mean if you wanted wood or marble in order to get these landmarks out you know you really had to you know get in there before anyone else did so i really like that tension of you know they just put a key in the bank so that means now they can you know move out into that are they going to go for a high one and lock it in before they do or are they going to you know take the lower one and get the resources and i I just love that you know trying to get there or pre-plan or you know just spread out at the beginning and then have all of that choice of where to go i I thought it was a great little game i i agree with you entirely about that part that part was neat because every time you go to, a, if you're the first to go to a building, you're going to get some bonus resource. And they were very scarce and very important. You had to figure out what you were going to do with those things. 
However, uh, they didn't see that that element of the point scoring didn't seem to be nearly as consequential as the area majority scoring, which turned out to be very very determinative in terms of the final scores. And again, by the time that be, by the time I felt I had enough information about how that was going to go, I felt like it was already a done deal. Another aspect, which is neither good nor bad, but just a matter of personal preference, is the other area of jockeying was for the so-called bonus tiles. There are a couple of ways to move along this track. And it's interesting in that you can go as far as you like along the track every time you move, but you can never move backwards. Well, almost never. So you want to go straight to space 20? Go ahead. Just You're giving up on spaces 1 to 19. And that's okay. That part I thought was cool. It did, however, lead to a certain element of having to plan ahead right from the start about where you were going to be and how you were going to score those bonus tiles because some bonus tiles would just give you some money or would give you uh, a power that you could trigger on later on. But on the other hand, some of them were score seven points per building you're occupying of this type. And it was about halfway through the game, again, when I looked around and said, ooh, those are going to be very consequential, I think. Okay, time to start planning for this stuff. But again, sometimes there wasn't enough latitude because things had already been determined. And so I, I don't like it when a game has strategic horizons, but those strategic horizons that you really need to be start calculating for in the early parts of the game are obscured by a random set of tile flips, where the, the which impacts both your knowledge of the game state and the availability of places to go, and you don't know when they're going to come up. So th that tension, again, was a little bit awkward, but you're absolutely right that some of the other extraneous bits in terms of getting the building resources, managing those resources, building these very expensive buildings, which could give you a lot of points, that part was really cool, and those trade-offs I did enjoy. So thank you for reminding me of those. When you were talking about the bonus tiles around the outside of the map and going as far as you like, I didn't think that played out as well as I thought it would. Everyone sort of just sort of plodded along and took every bonus that they could. It wasn't any of this really like zipping ahead and grabbing tiles before anyone could get them it happened a few times but not as much as i i had hoped well we discovered because we were playing online again uh, we kind of discovered half by accident that the bonus tiles weren't single use there were several instances of a bonus tile so there wasn't as much pressure to race ahead to get to them first because chances were excellent that one would still be around by the time you got there so you're right that pressure didn't manifest itself nearly as, as nicely as it was but it was one of those areas where I, I kind of recalled you commenting on a number of different games where you really had to look at the track and figure out at the start of the game where you were going to go and when i did think despite the fact that it was kind of visually busy i actually felt that that added to the charm it was very visually striking as a game board because it's supposed to be about belle époque france and there's a lot of very not baroque in the technical term but rather elaborate, flowery architecture. And it's got a nice little Arc de Triomphe in the middle, and it was very, very... It was very visually striking. I have to give it credit for that. Paris is a beautiful city. And that was Paris from Game Brewer. Mark, we got to play Guards of Atlantis 2 again. Never fails to please. This particular game, once again, right down to the very last turn. Could have went one way or the other. I love that. I hate when it's like always a blowout. I love the fact that this is a game that we're playing uh, over and over again, so there's like less of you know the you know uh, heavy-handed from one side. You know, there's less yes. mistakes or less you know taking champions that are out of your range or that don't work well together type thing. Absolutely. Or even if you do, people are figuring out how to use them in 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 ways to get back into the game type thing. So I'm looking forward to playing it finally in in real real life in like before space. times. Yes. I just have to give uh, give a mention to the character that Dewey tried because it, it really is impressive how that character works. And I was very glad that he chose her because the way she works in Guards 2, in Guards 1, she was already weird. And in Guards 2, she's even weirder. There's a tiebreaker element in Guards 2 whereby every action has an initiative value and you go from high initiative to low initiative. And if there's a tie, you basically alternate the tiebreaker. It's like, okay, well, the tiebreaker says blue wins the next tie. Oh, blue won the tie. You flip over the tiebreaker. The next tie is going to be won by Team Orange. And you go back and forth. And the character that he took, every card she has does one of two things based on where the, tie uh, where the tiebreaker is showing. And so you're in a position where you're playing a card thinking, I think I know what this thing is going to do. But it's possible that by the time my turn comes around, the tiebreaker token will have been flipped. And then I'll be doing something entirely different. And so what you have to do and Dewey did this marvelously a couple of times, is play the card no, uh, tr and 
put yourself in a position where either effect will get you something good. And that is hard and requires forward planning, but those are two things that are very much characteristic of Guards 2 at its best. It is hard to get these effects to trigger, and you have to get all your ducks in a row, but when it happens, it is so worth it. And there were a couple of times where he just caught our team with, well, he was on another team this time, and he just caught me with my pants down. It's like, wait, I knew you could do that. And here I was getting lost in my own plans, and he just completely cut the head off my character a couple of times as a result of doing that. Because I was, I was getting a little complacent because my character had a, a large number of defensive tricks, and I'd specced my character out for defense. And so I had no problem most of the time just running into the middle of a whole bunch of mobs and saying, ah, whatever, I mean, you might, you guys might come after me, maybe you won't, but I'll be fine. And then he just pulls out this card and it's like, oh, well, you sure lined that up really well. <laughs> it was, it was great. I love those little moments. Guards 2 is fabulous. And you're absolutely right. It benefits from repeat play in a way that few other games do. And lastly... I finally got to play Dice Hospital. This is a game where I read the rules like 17 times and kept wanting to try it, but never got to. And it played out much like I thought it would. This is a game that's sort of based on a hospital and you and you throw, you, it's a big dice, no, I shouldn't even say it's a dice chucker because you don't really roll them that much. So you pull these, I know, right? You pull these dice in your hospital. And it's, I think it, I think we could, I could safely call it clinic light. You know, it gives you, it gave me the same sort of feeling as Clinic did, but without, you know, the 500 different mechanisms, right? You brought the dice in, you had all these, you know, you place these nurses out and they upgraded the dice, you know, either the ones or the twos or the fives or the sixes. And, and I have a feeling that the game might get old pretty quickly if you played it a lot, because that's what you're doing. What are you going to do in your next turn, Mark? You're going to upgrade some dice and then you're going <laughs> to upgrade some dice and then you're going to do eight turns of upgrading dice. <laughs> and when you upgrade dice to seven, they go out of your hospital and you get points. And you're going to get points based on how many dice that you discharge that turn. So you want to discharge, sort of get a bunch of them all at once because it's, you know, the triangular exponential, you know, scoring type thing. Last time I was in a hospital, they said I had a discharge, but they didn't seem to think that it was a good news. Oh, that's odd and messy and gross. And that is Dice Hospital. Looking forward to playing it again. Quick, fun, and interesting. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Stonemeyer Games release is announced a new game coming out. Mark, aren't we excited? Red Rising, based on a book series by Pierce Brown. Have you read these books, Mark? I have not. Have you? I have started listening to them. Thanks, Stonemeyer. I read, I read a summary of the plot, and uh, many people seem to like the book series. But I will say this. This is no condemnation of the series. This is no condemnation of the genre. But I swear, read one synopsis of a post-apocalyptic dystopian science fiction thing. They all sound the same. So no doubt that this will make big headlines like all Stonemaier games do recently. So we'll see uh, how it goes. Red Rising by Stonemaier Games. Assault on Doomrock, Walker. Assault on Doomrock. Assault on Doomrock. I reported that there was some possibility. Tom Stasiak had teased the possibility of a fourth edition slash ultimate edition of Doomrock. It is happening. It is on. It is a go. It is going to be hitting Kickstarter later on this year. I am so very excited. There are far, far too many people who have not been exposed to Doomrock. It is very much the case, the sort of tactically crunchy co-op fantasy adventure combat thing. It's a very popular thing on the market. With a little bit more difficulty, a little bit more heft, a little bit more quality decision making. Not that I have anything against those other titles. Assault on Doomrock is absolutely wonderful. A lot of people are clamoring for very specific changes to Doomrock. I have great faith in Tom Stasiak's editorial voice. Because people have been pushing him to make Doomrock easier for years. And he's, no, uh, he's, he's been very solid like, no, it is supposed to be hard. You are supposed to lose. This is Doomrock. And I hope that this will this will stay the same. But nonetheless, there are going to be some changes, largely changes for the usability aspect, making the region cards bigger, making the monsters have an AI sheet rather than an AI deck, which actually looks to increase the usability. A little bit more flexibility with respect to how you use your dice, but hopefully not too much flexibility because I like how restrictive the dice placement is. Anyway, I am super, super excited about Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition. More news to follow. There's a Japanese publisher called Oink Games, Mark, and it's been very difficult to get their games in because, you know, the shipping is ridiculous or just unavailable. So now they have a Kickstarter where they have three games, and once you pledge, you know, you'll open up their sort of 
you know, quote unquote store and almost their entire line is there. So we'll have several oink games coming in when this finally all wraps up. So I'm looking forward to that. Take a quick look on Kickstarter, depending on when you're listening to this and see if you can get in on this deal. The one I know for sure is fake artist goes to New York. I know I got that for sure. And the three that are in the Kickstarter, okay, the pug game and and the other game and the other game that's not the pug game. It's fitting that you mentioned that because we talked about that in our latest episode, uh, Pledge of Indifference, our bi-weekly roundup, which is a Patreon exclusive show. This show is a multiple of five, so we're going to talk about how we have a Patreon. We have a Patreon. I just want to say, in addition to Walker's continuing improvement to the Patreon shows, we now have a video version of Pledge of Indifference, which uh, so far the feedback is very positive towards. I've also been shipping out a lot of games to our backers lately. I've sent out Sidereal Confluence. I sent out PAX Premier Second Edition. I sent out an extra copy of Fractures of Time that we have for Anachrony. I'm going to be sending out more games next week. I love sending games to our Patreon backers. That's not why they pledge, I hope. But it is a nice little fringe benefit that we give to our overlords and to our commissioners. But anyway, we have a Patreon. So, moving on. Mark, I'm a weak man. There's certain things I like. And there's a TV show on Netflix called Tales of Exadia, the Dragon Prince. Okay. Like I said, some things I like. Sure. This is what I like. They're going to have a role-playing system. You can sign up for free. They're going to give you the whole PDF so you can try it out and give feedback. So I'm looking forward to that read. Tales of Exadia. And lastly for me, there's a game called We Care. It's it's. I'm only bringing it up because it's this thing that people are doing. Like, It's a grizzled game. So what makes it a grizzled game, Mark, is because it's a card game? No, it's using the grizzled system. I know, but why can't they just... Why do they always have to tag something on just so it gets more buzz? But anyway... I think it helps explain why this project came kind of came out of nowhere. Basically, Simon is making a health distributing anyway a healthcare themed version of the Grizzled, and it's helpful to know people that look this plays using the Grizzled engine. I don't I don't see it as a marketing push, and they're going to be giving, giving donations to its Medicine Sans Frontières, isn't it? They are yes for every for every copy sold. I'm I think that's a great move. I think thematically it's a poor fit. Because in the Grizzled, like many other co-op games, you're not allowed to communicate. And let me tell you, as somebody who used to be a medical ethicist, having a game where you're all members of a healthcare team that you're not allowed to talk to each other is almost, it's close to being a brilliant satire of how medicine actually works, but not in a good way. Uh, so I, I support publishers giving to charity. What do you want? There you go. And the, the art looks fantastic. We care a Grizzled game. Finally, you may have seen recently the ongoing developments of the fallout and then the counter-fallout and then the fallout from the counter-fallout of the evolving situation concerning Daniele Toscini and problematic statements, both by him and other people. And most recently, in the recent episode of Rado's podcast, he basically accused people of not having empathy and wanting to destroy Daniele Toscini for no good reason. I think it's relatively clear based on our past statements that this we don't think that this is an accurate description of what's been going on, and, and we take exception to that description, both of our actions, but more importantly, the actions of other people. And in the fallout of Rado's broadcast, uh, some people started receiving, not ourselves, but some people we know, started receiving racist death threats because they were rallying to the defense of Daniele Ticini or whatever. Anyway, I don't want to tar Daniele Ticini with this. He didn't bring this on. And Rado, to his credit, I want to make this absolutely clear, is trying to edit out those bits of his podcast out. And his apology in the episode notes is a model of what apologies like this ought to look for. Taking ownership of what you've done, taking exception to the people who are quote-unquote arguing for you, and pledging to do better in the future. And we think that that is a textbook model, not that our thoughts are the definitive case on this, about how to go forward in the face of problematic comments. But I just want to comment... I've got a longer editorial on this. Uh, I think it would be fair to call it a profanity-laden rant that is going to be released to Patreon supporters tomorrow. But there's been a lot of talk about unity and sympathy and how in the face of these comments, we need to exhibit unity and sympathy for those that have been accused of problematic behavior. And I just want to point out one thing as a sort of evolving note to this evolving situation. Unity and sympathy are great values. But not in, not in a vacuum and not in the abstract. And you always must ask, unity with whom, sympathy with whom, and under what terms? When people are accused of problematic and harmful behavior, and if your immediate knee-jerk response is to just say, let's have unity and move forward, you are in effect ignoring the harms that have been inflicted upon these marginal, marginalized people. 
And when racialized gamers say we are we are being subjected to attacks and or comments that don't make us feel welcome, if your response to that is an appeal to unity, I'm afraid that is effectively ignoring the violence that is being done to them, and we cannot endorse that kind of unity. And sympathy is a marvelous attribute, but it always depends on with whom you sympathize and when. And undirected sympathy can actually be dangerous. And so while we like these values, and we are definitely not arguing for fractious disunity, we think that it is more important to dress systemic harms than to just make up absent efforts to make these problems better. And that is the news, and why it doesn't matter. And now on to our feature game, which is Hollertau, by a new designer, Uwe Rosenberg. I actually looked this up, Walker. You, you might be surprised, because we do our research here on Sober Wrong About Games. We do our due diligence. I looked it up. It turns out that... Just Uwe... one moment. One moment. Sorry, sorry. Our, our research? What, uh, no, no. It, it's, it's pronounced uh, research. Research. Yes. Ooh, do tell. And it turns out that Uwe Rosenberg has designed worker placement games before. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, so Uwe Rosenberg was initially known for his 1997 game Bonanza. And he definitely has a soft spot in my heart always and forever for his 1998 release Bargain Hunter, which for my money is the best hobbyist trick-taking game with the possible exception of the crew. He's probably best known, though, for his worker placement games. In 2007, he released Agricola. In 2008, La Havre. 2011, Ora et Labora, 2013, Caverna, 2014, Patchwork, which is not a worker placement game, but he's definitely well-known for that game, and uh, Swag Favorite, 2016, A Feast for Odin. And now in 2020, he has released Hallertau, yet another worker placement game that involves elements of farming, some cards, animal rearing, and some element of tile laying. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Hallertau? Mark, this land is ruled by a giant chicken. Your buildings <laughs> rampage across the countryside, and they can only be stopped by the heroic boulder boys. Pairs of sheep can no longer reproduce now. You have to liquor them up with fermented milk. Wait, don't want intoxicated sheep? No problem. Just go out and bury a mutton leg and poof, your very own army of undead sheep. And this is what happens in Hollertau. I sincerely believe that Walker should write the thematic introductions to certainly all Euro games, probably all games generally. Yes. Uh, okay. So where to start? So <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, let's start with the fact that we played this on Tabletop Simulator. And I felt this actually, this mod actually sped up the play. I think it, it actually helped the play of this particular game. It, it pushed along the turns and reset every round and, and cleaned up pieces every round. I think they did a fantastic job on this mod. It's a pretty good mod. It is not an official mod, but it is very well done. I should note that I have played the physical game. And just as a note, with respect to our editorial policies here at Silver and Robot Games, we will only review games based on digital plays only if the mod is officially sanctioned. Uh, failing that, we insist on having a physical copy ourselves. And whenever possible, we do like to talk about the components when we have them ourselves. But, you know, times being what they are. And I was actually su surprised by the fact that in person, it was it was faster than I thought it was going to be. Because like you, I was impressed by several elements of the automation. But managing your resource tallies is much easier and faster in person than it is uh, online. So I think it's really a question of six of one, half a dozen of the other. Like different elements are faster in different versions. But since we're talking about how long the game lasts, I will say, despite the fact that I'm going to be spending a lot of time comparing this to Agricola and Feast for Odin primarily, because those are my two other favorite uh, Uwe Rosenberg worker placement games, I think that it's safe to say that Hallertau is faster than any of his other worker placement games, by other than his very, very simple ones like Raycolt and maybe Nusfjord and things like that, by a significant margin. We're talking about, you know, 60 to 75 minutes rather than 90 to 120. That's true. Well, because it really cuts down on your decisions when in these other games you have, you know, what is it, 49 to 70 different worker placement <laughs> spots. Right. This one only has, you know, 16 to 20. So. <laughs> well, that, that that's primarily true of A Feast for Odin. It is less true of things like Agricola or the Av, which tend to have, well, the Av maybe later on in the game when you have lots of lots of spaces available. Uh, but it is that is certainly absolutely true of, of A Feast for Odin. Could be because this one has less resources. This one only has eight resources, nine if you count sheep. So maybe since they cut it down from like these other games that have 16 to 20 <laughs> different types of resources. 
Well, okay. So did you think that this aspect of it being shorter and with a mere eight or nine different kinds of resources, is that including tools? No, I don't think it is. So oh, sorry. I forgot. To, I forgot tools. I'm you're forgetting so sorry. tools. You're forgetting jewels. You're also forgetting cards, which are also arguably resources. So, I mean, we're still talking about a fair number of different resources. Did you feel the loss? Did you think that it was either too short or too pared down compared to his other bigger work replacement games? No, for for the decision space that you had and for the way the game worked, I thought this was perfect. I think they, it worked out just fine. You had this really cool mechanism of tracking your resources, like you said, and the, and the facts that uh, I think, I don't know if you'll agree or disagree, that the the cards are a, a big part of this game. There's these different decks of cards that are going to be drawing from, and sometimes the luck of those cards can be very swingy, and if the game was longer, I think that would be felt a lot harder and the fact that it's just six turns and you cruise through these turns so quickly the luck of these cards is a little thinned out because it's so fast i agree and i'll circle back to the cards in just half a second there's another aspect in which its relative brevity is advantageous which seeks to smooth out or at least obviate some of the problems of its other big difficulty there isn't really a catch-up mechanism. If you fall behind, there's not really a way you're going to catch up. And in point of fact, there are elements of the game, the, the aforementioned Boulder Boys, as you dubbed them, really, really serve to render a late-game surge difficult to impossible. Because the costs ramp up, and those boulders are in your way. So if you fall behind in a serious way, that's it, you're done. There's not really a way yeah, for you to catch up. This is what I had, That's what I had as my first point. You really know, need to know what you're doing off the beginning. Because a big, big part of the game is advancing your buildings forward. And if if uh, if whoever taught the game or if you read the rules and you didn't internalize the fact that you need these particular resources at the end of round one, then you are behind now. And because now you're going to get less workers, which is sort of like a you know cascading effect of being behind and now you're done. So, yeah. you know, you're still going to have a lot of fun playing the game. It's much like every other Uwe Rosenberg where it's like, it's just a fun game to play. You're creating your little crops and you're making your little animals and, you know, you're doing everything you do in an Uwe Rosenberg game, but there's no way you're going to catch up. Yeah, I agree. The, I shouldn't say no way. It's just a lot, very difficult. Right. Sorry. There are significant obstacles to you catching up in addition to the fact that you started out behind. To its credit, the rulebook does flag, by the way, you need to get clay around one, and if you don't, you're going to suffer. Uh, so that is absolutely something that, that a rules explainer needs to do. But let's go back to the cards, because I think that the card play is really one of the things that serves to differentiate Hollertau from its peers, because to a certain extent... Sometimes when I play an Uwe Rosenberg work replacement game, the last time I really, really felt this was Reykholt. I'm like, yeah, I've seen all these things before. I've seen all these things in three other Uwe Rosenberg games. I'm happy to play, but there's nothing new here. And they're all quality, and they're all solidly done, so I'm never going to slag on them. I don't get bored, but I don't see a reason to go to this one as opposed to any of his other ones, right? But when I play Hollertau, the way cards work really, I think, has been upped, upped his game. At Feast for Odin, the cards were largely ancillary and an afterthought. In Agricola, the cards are all important, but they only get played out as a result of a specific action space that you go to. So it doesn't dovetail with the rest of the game in quite a smooth way. But in Hallertau, you start off with cards, and you start off with a specific mix of cards, and the different decks work together in very specific ways, and you find yourself with these short-term goals and these medium-term goals and these long-term goals by virtue of the cards that you have. And you play this card, which gives you access to another card. And then you play that other card after paying a substantial cost. And that gives you a little bit of income. It also gives you some points at the end of the game. And then you go out of your way to get this other card. And every turn you're getting a new front. It's marvelous. The card cycling is honestly makes me so happy in Hallertau. You're absolutely right 100%. There's a luck of the draw element here. Sometimes you pull a card off the deck and you're able to play it right away because you meet the costs. Sometimes you pull a card off the deck and you're never going to be able to play it because it's too late or whatever or it's, it's too high of a lift. But honestly, most of the time, even when it doesn't work perfectly, it works really smoothly and in a really interesting way. And I adore how it works in Hollertown. Yeah, and like like you said, the fact that you can play the cards anytime, there's not this like bogging down or worrying about when to play them. And I think that just leads into the fact how quickly the game plays as well. Absolutely. It's, you play your gateway card to get a bonus. You hit that bonus to get your infrastructure. Your, you get you, you draw your new farm card and that gives you some direction what you want to do next round. You're saving up for that point card at the end of the game that's going to give you 10 points if you can pay all those hops. It's it's really well done. Yeah, or, or yeah, or you have a card 
in your hand that says you have to pay 10 wool. And then next turn, you grab a card that says you only have to have 15 wool. So you, you wait until you get the 15 wool, and then you play the other card that makes you pay it. It's like these very interesting combos and gives you sort of a direction to go in the game. So it's they're really good for the first few plays as well. They sort of give you, you know, a direction to go in and things to do. And there are four possible decks for each of two possible card types. And so there's a certain degree of variety there. Two of the decks of cards will be the same every game, but of the four decks of cards, two of them, you can mix them up. And it really is the case that so much of core Eurogame elements, things like endgame scoring, things like generating income, are offloaded onto these cards in a very, very successful way that reduces the rules overhead, but maximizes your decision space. The other thing that makes turns very quick, Mark, is the fact that when you get to the end of a round and you're pushing all these buildings across, everyone gets to do it at the same time. There's not this, okay, you do it, then you do it. Everyone's just sort of, so unfortunately it's a little bit of a heads down and you're not really watching what the other people are doing. But I think that leads to, because the, the, the blocking and the worker placement is real. It's there. We've seen it happen. And, and even the fact that they don't clear all the time, there's this interesting card system that you flip up and it'll tell, tell you, you take, you know, certain rows off. I guess we should just quickly explain on these worker spaces, you're, they have spaces for one, two or three workers. And that's what you have to place there. If there's one there already, you have to place two and two there, you have to place three. And then you flip up a card at the end of the round and it'll say, okay, in these particular sections, take off the top row. And so some of the spaces are still expensive to go to and some are cheaper. And you're sort of like trying to figure out which ones to pick. Just love it. We should stress that that's only in one, two, and three player games. In four player games, every row gets the top one off. But it really serves to smooth out the different player counts in a really nice way. And the worker placement does end up feeling pretty tight. There's no deliberate blocking. But it is the case that a jump from one worker to do an action to two workers to do an action is huge. Then, of course, the jump from two to three is less huge. But I actually like that. What it means is you really want to get that first jump at something. But then after that, it releases a little bit of the pressure. So if you really need to do it, you can go and send the three workers there. But the difference between th two and three isn't a huge deal. Uh, going back to the buildings that you talked about, because that's one of the key one of the key ways to score. You have these five different craft buildings, and they each have different goods costs associated with them. In round one, you have to spend one good. In round two, you have to pay two goods. In round three, it's three goods or two goods if you pay with two different types. And it ramps up that way, so you're incentivized to maintain a diverse economy so as to be able to pay these costs. What it actually is, I was concerned about this when reading the rules, this is actually tracks on tracks on tracks. It's it's more or less my, my, my core objection. You've got five different sets of costs that are all different, but it doesn't end up feeling like tedious accounting, nor does it feel divorced from the rest of the game. In the latter case, it doesn't feel divorced because it's one of the key ways you can score points, and it's how you get more workers, and so you're incentivized to do that. So it all funnels towards being able to advance these buildings. And number two, it's not complicated accounting because they're just printed right there on the buildings what you need to do to advance them. And it's not so tight. The tightness of the economy in terms of the specificity of the resources you need, sometimes you get to bottlenecks. But those bottlenecks are clear. It's like, oh, I have no clay. Or, oh, I have no goods of this type. I had better go do something about that. But you don't end up getting into a situation where it's like, really? I'm drowning in resources, but I can't advance this because I'm missing the one specific thing that I needed? You don't tend to encounter that. And as a result, I don't end, end up objecting to it the way I do to other Tracks on Tracks on Tracks games. Yeah, because it incorporates this other thing that we haven't talked about yet, and that's the jewelry. You can, there's other ways to collect this jewelry. And if you don't have, like you said, that one resource, and you can spend a jewel, and it just advances a building automatically. And it sort of incorporates the tools that we talked about where you have to advance the boulders up because you advance your building so far, they hit the boulders. And so there is a little bit of a puzzle sometimes. You can say, okay, well, I can advance this one so many turns, and but I'll use my tools to move these boulders because I have these extra resources and I'll make sure I use it for that particular building and save it for next turn. I think very interesting for sure. Yeah, the way the jewels and tools and variety bonuses work together and the ramping up costs, I think it all works marvelously. And I really like how it gives a sense of an arc of, of escalating difficulty to the game. Yeah, and I sort of touched on it briefly. I really love how they track the resources. You have these five rows of fields, and this is also how you track all of your resources. You move them, you know, adding resources to this track of five, and that's how you tell how many resources you have. And when you uh, harvest your crops, you simply slide the tokens over. 
that row and that's how many crops you get, right? So if you plant in row five, when you harvest, you get five crops and then they, and then they sort of deteriorate and one gets to go up. I think that was a nice touch and the whole, you know, cause Uwe Rosenberg, you have to have crops. Oh yeah. And I thought that was a nice, a nice change. I remain a little bit disappointed that the crop rotation isn't as substantial as I wanted it to be. I've talked about this before when talking about the game. There's only six rounds, so you don't ever really have to spend a whole lot of time leaving fields fallow, especially given that there's one action space that makes two of your fields super awesome right away. And given how much lip service is given to the necessity of crop rotation, the fact that it didn't really come together is is one aspect of disappointment I have with the game. Yeah, there is quite a few cards that are based off of how many fields you have. Maybe if they started the game with a few more fields, then that rotation would have actually come into into play. You know what I mean? But since you they lock you down, because there is a, a big fight for the planting spaces, right? So there, so if you had more fields, then you know you would when you p- could plant less, there would be a rotation thing going on. I do like how you have to manage the number of fields you have and you have to manage what is on the fields because you start off with three fields and there are ways to sell fields or use fields to pay for various costs, but there are four different types of crops. And so there's this pressure to maintain new fields and get old ones. And sometimes you need so much of a given resource, you're willing to plant it on two different fields at the same time. So that part I think is great. It's a lovely little bit of management. It's specifically the rotation aspect that felt a little unsatisfying to me. That's all. All right. Now talking about tracking resources, let's see something that I didn't like in the in the game, and it's not so it was a terrible thing. It's just that it seemed awfully fiddly compared to the rest of the game that was so locked down. It's this like when you get sheep, they sort of go on a card mm. and, and they slide down, and then they they might come off, and you have to there's ways to move them along, and and then maybe they'll drop down into the unkillable zone and. <laughs> Compared to the rest of the game, it seemed a little fiddly. What I found unusual, I I don't necessarily agree with that criticism, but I found it unusual that the sheep didn't breed by themselves. It was just one of those areas where you've played Uwe Rosenberg games before. Some of these things will be familiar, but this, I think this is the first time in a long time I've ever played an Uwe Rosenberg game where you didn't have an animal breeding phase. It was just unusual. This is not a complaint nor a compliment. It's just an unusual aspect. Agreed. It was disconcerting. Oh yeah, we did want to go back. We were talking about uh, the action spaces, and I had a point here where there was yet another decision to make near the end of a round where we talked about getting these tools, and the pretty well the ma- the majority of the way to get tools was to just give up action cubes. It's like instead of taking action, I'm going to take these tools, and I just thought that was a great de- decision space there. When to do that, and how many times to do that, and for me remembering to do that. <laughs> well, it's also a good safety valve, right? If you don't have enough workers to go to any of the action spaces, or if the action spaces you really wanted are now completely booked, or if they're too full or what have you, there is still a lot. Most worker placement games have this. This is the one worker placement action that anybody can do at any time without restriction. And here it's tools, which let you move boulders, which help you move your buildings along. And so it's good as a safety valve, and it also requires forward planning because, you know, and this this is one of the things that ultimately I really, really appreciate about Hallertau. You're, ba- you're balancing all these resource demands all at the same time. You've got to plan for the future, and you've got to manage to get your cards out, and you've got to pay to advance all your buildings every round, one hopes. But at the same time, you need to get to all those action spaces to get to the get the planting and all the sheep you need. But at the same token, you have to worry about clay, and you also have to make sure that you've got the tools necessary, because if you don't have it with any tools, you're going to be in serious problem. And oh, but I, I, I could sell that that field for some jewels, and jewels are great. These kinds of resource trade-offs that are both short-term and long-term, I think, are done with just the right level of grit and granularity, such that there's enough detail to get really interested, but not so much detail that you get tripped up by a small recipe requirement. I really think that the balance in all those elements is handled in Hallertau just about perfectly. It's true. I... I... I was going to write that same point, something about, you know, making sure you're moving your cottage, like you said, moving your buildings, because that's where you're going to get the points. But then I was thinking, instead of dumping all of these resources, because it is a huge resource dump mm-hmm. to move these buildings along, and we want to do this, because like you said, that gives you victory points, and not only does... And workers. And workers, and but it has this really cool mechanism, because every time all of the buildings move an equal amount, then your entire cottage shifts over, and you start to get more workers. And once you shift it over enough, then you start to get really big victory points. It is a huge jump. But I'm wondering, 
And I'm wondering what you think is, do you think there is a strategy on not moving your cottage at all? Yes. I have pursued it a couple of times with varying degrees of success. Now, obviously, there's pressure to advance your buildings for other reasons. And there's also pressure to advance your cottage, at least so you can get some more workers out. I don't think it is viable, and this is hardly unique in a worker placement game, to succeed never having upgraded the number of workers you have. You just can't compete. If you've got six workers and everybody else has got 10 or 12, that's it. You're done. But it depends on how much you want to put yourself at the mercy of the cards. Because if you're not going to get your a lot of points from advancing your community building, you're going to make it up through with the cards you get. And it requires a gut check. You just have to say, look, I'm going to devote myself to getting bonus cards and endgame end game scoring cards. And you have to hope they come up in, in the right way. Because if you spend a lot of effort getting those endgame bonus cards to make up the difference, and you reliably get the cards that are worth three or four points, you're not going to get very far. And one time I tried it, that's kind of what happened, and I, I felt like I regretted it. Another time I did it, it worked very well. It depends on how much you want to gamble, honestly, is how I would put it. I'm wondering if it would work it work a little bit better in a solo game where you're not getting too much competition for the card spaces, but if you're in a four-player game and you start that strategy when other people are just getting cards on a whim or just because, you know, once that's all they have left to do, and you're going to start getting shut out of that, you know, your one lane to victory points, then you're kind of, you're done. I agree. However, this is this is a decision that you don't really have to commit to too, too early, because again... Uh, I maintain, I'm not an expert in Hollertown. I'm not going to say that this is a strategy guide, but you do have to upgrade your community center to get more workers in the early parts. The question is, right around the mid-game, if you want to keep going down that path to get those huge point bonuses, or if you want to focus more on the point cards or do a little bit of both. Most of the time, I'm a conservative guy. I tend to try to focus on doing a little bit of both. But those times when I'm focused on getting more cards was a little bit more of a gambler strategy. Uh, I agree with you that if multiple people are doing other things exogenously that they would get in your way. But again, you don't have to commit to that strategy right at the start of the game. So I think it's something you can be a little reactive to. Another mild criticism I have with respect to Hallertau, and this is especially when compared to A Feast for Odin or Agricola, my two other favorite Uwe Rosenberg work placement games, is at the end of a game of Hallertau, the one thing I miss from its shorter time scale and slightly more focused approach, I don't feel like I've built anything. When I look down at my farm in Agricola, when I look down at my board at A Feast for Odin, I get to look at all this stuff that I've accumulated and all the stuff that I've done. I get to look at my house and all the animals and all the different pens that I've gotten in Agricola. In A Feast for Odin, I get to look at my colonies and all these tiles that I've acquired, all these things that I've stolen from the English. At the end of Hollertau, I've got maybe some fields and a whole bunch of cards that I've played. And that's about it. And so you don't get that kind of satisfaction, that sense of investment, that sense of ownership, which is a trade-off I'm more than willing to make. But it is one aspect that I... I miss from other Uwe Rosenberg games. No, I agree. It, you don't have that same sort of look at the cool farm I just built. Even though you, you know, even though you didn't win, you can look down. Not so prevalent in this. I guess you can look at how far you've, your cottage has tried to run away from the village. <laughs> so to sum up speaking personally, I think that this is easily Uwe Rosenberg's best work since A Feast for Odin. And I'm not sure which I would prefer, either A Feast for Odin or Hallertau. And that, for me, is high praise, because I love A Feast for Odin. Agricola is still my favorite Uwe Rosenberg work replacement game. But to but Hallertau really surprised me with how much uh, I enjoyed it. It's quick, it's engaging, it does a lot of things well that I didn't think it was going to do well. And the card play is honestly next level when compared to a lot of other comparable Euros and a lot of other comparable Uwe Rosenberg games. So I recommend I like, it wholeheartedly, and I look forward to playing it some more. I like how he's completely diverged from a lot of his, you know, usual tropes, right? And I'm hoping that he'll come out with some other games that are completely, you know, devoid of, you know, this usual stuff and something more interesting because I know he's got a lot that he's yet to give. Well, I wouldn't necessarily hold my breath too much for that because this is still about, you know, farming various resources and breeding sheep, so... <laughs> and I just do want to say quickly before uh, I forget, if you are listening to this podcast in time, we are going to be playing Agricola live this Saturday. So if you hear this soon enough, tune in. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bickney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out our Board Game Gate Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.